My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old. I care about climate justice and the living planet. Scientists have been telling us for decades, over and over again, far too many leaders have refused to listen. What do we want? You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. The world's richest nations are the most responsible for the climate crisis, yet the effects are being felt first and worst by the poorest nations and the most vulnerable peoples and communities. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. There is no more time to waste. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Every day we fail to act is a day that we step a little closer towards a fate that none of us want. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. Self. How do we teach when the world is burning? We're all BC educators. I'm Jasmine. I'm Kate. I'm Derek. And I'm Catherine. So how do we do our jobs when this question is on our mind and it's all we can think about? Thinking about this problem, it's so big, complex, it's, it's overwhelming. More and more people do understand that climate change is happening, but they feel there are no solutions. They feel helpless. And I think we've painted this picture that individual actions are the actions that we need to take, yet those solutions are kind of out of reach and they feel disconnected. And we are looking at making connections between systems of power that create injustice and make ruin of our planet. In some ways, we're bringing our listeners along on this learning journey that we're actually doing. We have acknowledged that we've done a lot of learning but we don't have all the answers and we're excited to keep finding things out. We need to find out better ways to teach more effective climate change education and another thing that we're excited to explore is how people are already doing this impactful work. The name Reasonably Radical came to us while listening to the podcast Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. They talked about how seemingly reasonable actions are deemed radical in our society. Isn't it reasonable to eliminate fossil fuels to cut our emissions? Isn't it reasonable to want everyone to have access to what they need to thrive? Isn't it reasonable to want a livable planet for all species and do what it takes to get there? Before we go any further, we want to acknowledge the land that this podcast has been created and recorded on. We are all settlers on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Stolo Nations. Our guests will be speaking to us from across Turtle Island and will acknowledge their own land as well. This is really important to us because we need to recognize that our thoughts, our ideas, our experiences, and our learning have all been formed and shaped by the land that we live on. And we can't, in climate action and climate work, separate ourselves from the land. First up, we talked to Dr. Simon Donner, 
a professor at the University of British Columbia. I'm in Vancouver, and so we are on the, the traditional territories of the Musqueam, uh, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. And I always like to say it's the traditional lands and waters. Dr. Donner is a climate scientist who teaches geography and works with the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries at UBC. We wanted to speak to Simon to get a real crash course on climate change. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with many of the systems connected to our climate. What's affecting them, what's contributing to climate change, what some of the impacts will be. However, as we'll see later in this episode, many Canadians overestimate their knowledge about climate change and don't actually know it as well as they think they do. If there were not greenhouse gas and gases in the atmosphere, so carbon dioxide and others, including, wa- including water vapor, so gaseous form of water, in the atmosphere, the planet would be about 33 degrees colder than it is. And there probably wouldn't be any life on the surface because it would be frozen. And this isn't a new idea. So back in the 1800s, people figured out that certain types of gases, just because of the way of their molecular properties, which influence the way they vibrate and rotate naturally, can absorb certain forms of energy, certain forms of radiant energy. Uh, And that gases like carbon dioxide are able to absorb radiant energy that is emitted from the from the planet's surface, right? They don't absorb the radiation coming in from the sun, but it's being emitted by the planet's surface. And anything that absorbs radiation also emits radiation, which means that we have that the Earth's surface is getting energy both from the sun and from the atmosphere. That the atmosphere is emitting radi- um, radiant energy downwards because we have these gases in it, right? And what's happened is we've been increasing the concentration of those gases in the atmosphere by burning, largely by burning carbon, fossilized forms of carbon, like um, oil, coal, and natural gas, but also uh, by, by cutting down uh, burning or letting forced matter decompose. And so that's added to these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And the simple math of this would tell you that you would expect the planet to warm as a result. The key thing to know about this science is it's not unique to climate change. There isn't really like a core physics or chemistry to climate change science that's separate from anything else. All of this stuff is embedded in what in, in physics and chemistry it goes back to the 1800s. You can't extract it and set it apart separately. And the reason that matters is that f- for scientists to be wrong about greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions leading to climate change, We'd have to be wrong about a whole bunch of fundamental things in physics and chemistry, like which would mean that we'd really like you know just set fire to the first year you know first year university physics and physics textbooks because all it's, they're just really core concepts. So that's the core driver of the problem. And uh, one other uh, one common misconception out there is that this is only part of the driver of the problem, but actually if you really drill into the numbers, human activity is responsible for roughly a hundred percent of the warming that we've, we've seen since the Industrial Revolution. The other possible causes of climate change, you could think of maybe the sun's gotten warmer. Well, actually, there's very strong evidence that shows that the changes in the sun have not been significant enough, nor could explain the pattern of warming we've seen. That's one example. Another one you sometimes hear is that, oh, well, the climate might be varying. There might be some sort of natural variability. But the thing to understand about natural variability in the climate is it just means heat moving around between different parts of our system. So there's more heat in the ocean, less in the atmosphere, and that's why the atmosphere cooled for a couple of years. So the only way that that could be explaining climate change is if the climate change was only happening in the atmosphere. 
except every part of the climate system is actually warming, right? The oceans, the atmosphere, ice sheets, everything. And in fact, the vast majority of the extra warming is happening in the ocean. And so the only physical explanation there could really be for that is if, um, is, is the, for all of this, is if there were extra greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, trapping some of this radiant energy and emitting it back down to the surface. Let's just pause for a minute there. Dr. Donner touched on two really important things for teachers to know. One, the science on climate change is rock solid. For us to be wrong about this, we would have to be wrong about the fundamentals of chemistry and physics that we have been building for centuries. So there's no controversy when teaching the scientific facts of climate change. And unfortunately, a lot of provincial curriculums do not hammer home this point, that there is no debate whether climate change is happening or not. The second point is that climate change as we are seeing it today is 100% caused by human activity. Those natural fluctuations in the planetary climate system do not account for what we are seeing. Next, we asked Dr. Donner to give us a quick rundown on some of the local impacts in British Columbia of climate change. The first thing to know is that Canada is warming at about twice the rate as the rest of the, of the rest of the planet. And it will, pro, it will continue to warm at twice the, about twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And that's not because we've done something bad in particular. It's just the, the physics and geography of the planet. Uh, we have a lot of snow and ice, and when that snow and ice melts, it leaves behind a darker surface that can lead to more warming. And so we've got a feedback effect going on just because we're a higher latitude country. So we're already warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. And in, in uh, British Columbia in particular, uh, but uh, you could almost say as Canada as a whole, uh, there's more warming that's happening in the winter than in summer. So we're seeing a bigger change in our winters than in our summers. We do accept to, expect to be seeing our summers getting drier, but what matters the most is that more rain, more snow falling is rain. And so like the snow line moving up in the mountains, for example, right? And as that happens, it shifts the, the timing of say water, the peak of runoff in a river, the peak of snow, soil moisture, you know, when the soils are moistest. And what that all means is that it helps contribute more to the potential for drier summers and also setting the stage for things like damaging wildfires, if you already are a little bit drier going into, going into the spring. So the concern about wildfires is very big. Those are a few examples. For people living in coastal communities, sea level rise is one of the number one concerns, the potentially up to a meter of sea level rise by the end of the century, probably more. It doesn't sound like much, but the mean, the average isn't what matters. It's the variability. So think not about the average sea level going up, but that each high tide and each storm surge being higher. And so the real threat of sea level rise are the extreme events, the flood events, the erosion events, much in the way that we worry about heat waves or forest fires. So drier summers and wetter winters with more rain than snow. And the big thing to worry about is extreme events. And of course, these changes impact both humans and the more than human world. Plants, animals, insects, all of these species are deeply impacted by these changes to their habitats.
Recognizing the urgency of the time frame is crucial not just for teachers, but for all human beings on this planet. We know that the next couple decades are the most significant in terms of our potential for really progressive decision-making that puts people on the planet ahead of profits and moves toward and achieves a just, sustainable society for all. The question inevitably turns to, how do we do that? And why isn't it happening already? To dig more into the current state of climate change education in Canada, we spoke to Dr. Ellen Field. My name is Dr. Ellen Field, and I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Lakehead University in Orillia. And Orillia is in the Williams Treaty Territory and is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe. And the Anishinaabe include the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and Potawatomi nations, collectively known as the Three Fires Confederacy. We wanted to talk to Dr. Field about a nationwide survey she conducted with Learning for a Sustainable Future, a nonprofit that works to integrate sustainability education into the Canadian education system. The survey focused on Canada, climate change, and education, and had almost 4,000 participants, which included students from grades 7 to 12, parents, the general public, and teachers, both an open sample of teachers who volunteered and a closed sample who were randomly selected. So looking at the sort of results of the survey, in terms of the overall knowledge of Canadians, most people believe climate change is happening. Most people believe that humans are causing it and are concerned about the risks, but only 57% actually passed a knowledge test about climate change. Did that surprise you? I'd like to say yes, um, but no, it didn't really surprise me. Um, we know from other research studies uh, in done in Canada and the group Ecoanalytics has really done a ton of research in this area um, that looking at their data sets, um, the rate of acceptance among Canadian among Canadians that climate change is happening is quite high and it's around 85 to 90 percent among the Canadian population. And the survey data shows that while there's wide acceptance of climate change occurring, there are these big knowledge gaps, such as correctly identifying that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are causing climate change. In the survey, 79% uh, of our open sample educators responded correctly that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are the primary cause, while only 48% of closed sample educators correctly responded. And so this really shows a need for professional development um, for educators across Canada and broadly the public, but specifically um, for our educators. And really when we think about this from a policy perspective, if the public doesn't understand that greenhouse gases are the main cause of climate change, then how can we expect um, that they will necessarily understand some of the things that we should be voting on in different ways or supporting government in certain ways? If, if that basic uh, foundational connection to what's causing climate change isn't there among the Canadian public. Um, so we can't expect that we're going to have strong greenhouse gas reduction policies unless we do have some knowledge and understanding in the Canadian public. 
So what do we need to do to get to that point where the Canadian public is educated enough about climate change to understand the policies that need to be put into place to take action and to make a difference? Well, one place we can look to is our curriculum. How much is climate change already present in the curriculum and what new areas could we connect it to? Last year, a graduate assistant and I, Gia uh, Spropolis, we, we looked at every um, provincial and territorial uh, curriculum. And first, we just wanted to see how many times does climate change come up and just did like word frequency to see how many hits it's named in curriculum expectations. But then we soon realized um, after a study came out um, by Wynn and Nichols that looked at evaluating the curriculum, but they didn't they didn't really pull apart whether something is a mandatory or an elective class. And they just gave sort of a, a grade, not a grade, they showed which provinces do it well. And Saskatchewan actually came forward in that study as being one of the better but from our study, which we haven't released yet, it's actually not, it, it A, doesn't have many, many hits in terms of the times that it's mentioned, but it also, all of the ways that students learn is only in electives in grade 11 and 12. It's a similar situation in British Columbia. Climate change is one topic in the grade seven science curriculum. However, after that point, Climate change is not part of any mandatory course from grade 8 to 12 in BC. Later on in this episode, we're going to speak to some high school students who are deeply concerned about this. One question we can ask is, who can we look to for good examples of climate change curriculum? So other countries are doing it. Italy uh, was the first to make climate change a core curriculum aspect. New Zealand has moved that way. The state of New Jersey has done it. The state of Islamabad has. I mean, this is, it's not new. So Canada, with the sort of world-renowned education system that we have, should be doing this. And second to that, Canada, as a signatory to the, the Paris Climate Change Agreement, Article 12 of the Paris Climate Change Agreement says that the parties will enhance climate change education. And so as a signatory, we're actually required to do so. The problem is we have this provincially federated system. Ministries of education aren't also being held to account by the federal government to be moving on this. So how do we support teachers to move ahead with climate change education, even if the curriculum or the Ministry of Education are not? In Dr. Field's survey, 75 to 80% of teachers said they believe that climate change education is the role of all teachers, no matter what their subject. However, less than 50% said that they had the knowledge and skills needed to teach climate change education to their students. So what is it that teachers need to help them move forward with this teaching? Luckily, that was one of the questions on Dr. Field's survey. So in terms of the things... Um that teachers said in the survey, climate change resources was the number one thing, lesson plans, videos, books. And then second to that, professional development on climate change, uh, information on climate science. And then interestingly, like curriculum policy was listed much further down. I thought we would see much higher up in the survey 
would be curriculum reform or curriculum policy so that it made it forefront and center because you know teachers always say I don't have time where do I fit it in I don't have time but that was much lower in terms of the supports that teachers need I think that also indicates that there's a willingness for teachers to connect it to what they already teach but I think the survey clearly shows there's a gap of teachers seeing how it relates to their area because when we asked how many hours teachers teach climate change, the predominant amount of hours is one to 10. However, when we look at the closed sample, I think it's almost half said not applicable. And so that also indicates that they're just not seeing those connections to how it, they could be teaching it in language class or in math class. As Dr. Field pointed out, Teachers are at many different stages of this journey towards being confident climate change educators. We touched on the idea of controversy earlier when Dr. Donner was talking about the science of climate change. But this topic often comes up when teachers are thinking about integrating climate change into their subject. There's a lot of things at play um, in terms of like some of the reasons why some teachers become engaged and also some of the larger societal reasons like there's a a strong perception among teachers that you know climate change is controversial and they're concerned about like that parents might be upset or there might be conflict and so they may you know skirt over it more quickly depending on where in Canada they're teaching or they may you know push it to the end of the year and cover it in a very short period of time in June um so there's different things that happen as, as well as if a teacher doesn't feel as confident about their knowledge skills to be able to teach it um they they may also you know decide to not emphasize it as much We hope to explore this idea of controversy throughout this podcast. For now, we know the science itself is not controversial. However, how we respond to climate change is definitely complex. We also asked Dr. Field about the results of students in her survey. Their survey uses a ladder of engagement created by EcoAnalytics, where we have four audiences to consider. People move from being dismissive, disagreeing that climate change is happening, skeptics who agree that climate change is happening but don't think that it's caused by humans, aware, people that agree that climate change is happening and think that humans are causing it, and think that there's nothing we can do about it, to finally those who are empowered They agree that climate change is happening, it's caused by humans, and they have the belief that there are things we can do to change it. The survey results found that only 28% of students are empowered. 46% of them were aware, meaning they believe in climate change, they think humans are causing it, but they feel that there are no solutions to the problem. The other 26% are either skeptics or dismissive. What causes this disconnect where students see that this is a huge global problem, but don't believe that there are viable solutions? So this particular question, like when I saw the data, it it really was a moment that I just, like, I just kind of put my head down. What students learn in Canada so far from a curriculum standpoint is really the climate science 
the Win and Nichols study showed that that students don't really learn the, about the scientific consensus. They don't learn solutions. And so what we're seeing, I think, in this data is that students just aren't learning about what's possible. And so that in, alone needs a reflective moment in terms of what as educators that means in terms of the mindset that these young people are growing up with as they watch the news, as they watch wildfires. That's, a, that's an existential moment, right? That, that's a moment of reckoning, um, of coming to understand that the systems that we have in the world and society are not governing to protect your well-being or your future. And we can't blue sky or positive think our way out of climate change. But I think a nuance of the argument is really important is that we need to convey the urgency, but we have to move away. Um, and this comes out of Ellen Kelsey's new book, Hope Matters, who's a professor at UIC. We need to move away from the problem identification in the way that we study and research and look at environmental issues. And we need to also have a solutions orientation mindset to be able to constant positive change that has happened for our well-being, but also for our understanding of what's possible. The last perspective we want to share with you in this episode are the voices of youth. We spoke with four high school students in the Lower Mainland. My name is Hannah Wiki. My name is Matthew Huang. I'm Naomi Leung. Hi, I'm Kimberly Chan. So we are Climate Education Reform BC. We are um, a youth-led organization with high school students throughout the Lower Mainland, and it's continually growing throughout British Columbia. Very soon, we're about to officially launch our grassroots campaign advocating for implementation of climate change education in the BC K-12 curriculum. If we're going to talk about how this all started, this is actually an idea that goes way back to um, six months ago. Um, it's a question that I, it's a it's an answer that I to a question that I kept asking myself. It's how do we stop climate change? How do we why aren't people doing anything about climate change? And, and I came to realize that climate change is a very complex topic. It's, it's one that it, it may come off as a very simple idea, right? Um, but it's a lot more than just greenhouse gas emissions rising. The question is, how do we stop it? What I think needs to happen is for students to, to understand the issue, and that is not happening throughout schools, um, which is how this organization basically started. Hannah, Matthew, and Kimberly all met through a leadership program at Windermere Secondary School in Vancouver. We asked them about the significance of this program. We've been exposed to a lot of climate justice issues as well as environmental stewardship. And so we've kind of had exposure to that, not necessarily um, the full complexity of it, but individual parts that we've been able to shape our pictures of kind of climate crisis that's currently happening and what's missing in the education system. And as we went through this program, we definitely noticed a big difference between what we were learning and what students even in the mainstream programs at our school were learning and how there's a lot of things that they didn't know about that they weren't comfortable with. And there was a lot of isolation that even us as students felt like there was 
um, a lot of stigma kind of, well, not necessarily stigma, but I'd say like, oh yeah, you guys are like the people who do recycling and just like, it wasn't taken as seriously because they didn't have that same exposure or urgency that was taught to them in the way that it was to us. And so as we recognized the privilege that we had to be in a position that it was taught to us, we saw that this should be something that all students have access to so that they can form their own opinions about it, that they can be educated and that they can be prepared for the climate crisis that is currently happening that um, isn't really addressed enough. We asked what else they felt was lacking in their climate change education. So even um, beyond the larger scale level, I know myself, um, Hannah, Matthew and Kimberly, we had all noticed how beyond our individual green programs within our schools, beyond our environmental clubs, we found that teachers, not that they had not wanted to, but that they were not properly equipped to teach students how to prepare for the climate emergency. And so, especially because it was not emphasized beyond courses, like environmental courses that are often not offered in a lot of schools, we found that students were not even aware that it was a state of climate emergency, especially not students um, outside of the climate activism scene. So that's why we thought it was so vital to implement our, this program into the school's curriculum. Clearly, these students have learned about climate change somehow. So we asked them to comment on the learning experiences they have had surrounding climate change. So climate change has actually been brought up. Um, I remember learning it through a few other courses, but these courses has been science and social studies. In science nine, it would be taught through the carbon cycle. Social studies nine, it would be brought up through the industrial revolution if teachers do decide to teach that. And that's with if, which is because teachers do get a choice of which revolutions to teach. Science 10, uh, it, it would be brought up through, through the nuclear energy unit. But this all depends on what teachers are teaching. And another problem with this is, is that if we think about how climate change is taught in social studies class, it's using the past to link to the present, right? Using past events, because that's how the curriculum is focused on. And the problem is that, is that when that happens, you're not ex- exactly empowering students to make a change for the future, right? What needs to happen is that students are taught about the present and the future. So, so students know what's going to happen and what students need to do. Enabling students and empowering them to first envision a better future and one in which we can take collective action to mitigate climate change is vitally important. I think it's really important to do this on a large scale and in our curriculum because oftentimes we're looking at climate change as if it's this large overwhelming problem and not necessarily one that individual students like ourselves can take action um, against um, in more like radical um, and activist spaces, we are able to really empower people through talking about change making. However, especially within schools, in places where it often like our schools often serve our capitalistic society, and so we're not always taught to question um, the status quo and what is there and what is currently being taught. We're not always taught to question what our teachers are teaching, and so that's why I think it's really important um, to not only equip students in schools with like scientific knowledge of climate change, but also with change making skills and collective skills that we often talk about outside um, in climate activist spaces. We also wanted to know how aware their peers are of climate change and the most effective solutions for tackling it. I have kind of an easy example to the answer of this. Um, Matthew and I, for our yearbook quote, 
or like our yearbook selections were nominated for most likely to find a solution to climate change. And that in itself is redundant. There is no one solution. There have been solutions that have been shared, such as recycling and carbon like reduction and footprint tracking and all of that. But ultimately, it has to be something that is addressed from the root, which is capitalism and colonialism, something that we have to continue to work towards because it's been so swept under the rug for the past couple of years that it, it's almost impossible to talk about at this point. Like it's it needs to be there needs to be a space to be discussed about because it's so ignored at this point. So I think making sure that students understand that is going to be the first step to moving forward to now what are the tangible solutions that we can go towards for this and what are the next steps. But just making sure that that's a basis is I think I can think of like many of my peers who don't understand that and explaining that to them would take time and resources and even knowledge that myself like I don't have it's something that I'm continuing to learn so that's just like an easy answer that I can think of. So all of these concerns and thoughts have led these students to form Climate Education Reform BC and they have a series of demands for the education system. So the first aspect of it is to have an independent committee to review how BC's K-12 system is preparing students for the climate emergency. So essentially we want to have a review that is done into the education system because having this will be the base for change. If we can adequately have evidence of what is lacking in the BC education system and what students are not being taught, we'll provide a clear evidence that there needs to be some change. Essentially, what the second demand is just asking for is the actual change in the curriculum. So after we've had this review and the proof that it needs to be changed, we can move forward with the revision, right? If we have the basis, then we can move forward. So what we want to see in the um, in the curriculum change would be the core expl explanation of the climate systems, the evidence of the rising temperature. So proof of what's happening, like this isn't an issue that as some politicians say, like is fake, it's all a lie, right? Like this is, there's real concrete evidence. We can see it in our daily lives. We see it through past events. And so just making sure that students have that knowledge as well as we want to push that this is mainly based off of human contribution. So the anthropogenic greenhouse effect is kind of one of the uh, terms for that, as well as acknowledging the diverse impacts associated with climate crisis and the intersectionality of the climate crisis. And so just recognizing that this isn't solely limited to the sciences or social studies and that it's across all of the curriculum as well as in our daily lives and things outside of school. So just making sure that we're teaching that as well as the resources and tools for mitigation. So just making sure that students after they have all of this knowledge of what is happening and the causes and that they can have the resources to move forward and understand like what are the next steps so that we can make these changes and how can we be prepared for it. Our third demand is just, I guess, providing more support for re uh, for teachers, uh, providing more uh, resources for them, like training on like pro-D days and more access to government resources and statistics um, that will provide uh, teachers with the information so they feel comfortable about teaching climate change to their students. So our last demand is a youth advisory council to essentially give feedback and continue to ensure that the curriculum changes are implemented. Students are the ones who are spending the most time in schools, right? Not the people who are writing the curriculum. Students spend over 900 hours. We should know the best out of everyone. We would basically have the information as, as to what we think needs to be taught, what we know is already taught. We have the experience and 
and how we can use that experience to create something better. Two further goals that the students have identified are for the BC Ministry of Education to publicly declare a climate emergency and for school infrastructure to be decarbonized in alignment with transitioning towards net zero greenhouse gas emissions. We look forward to sharing more of these students' voices with you in upcoming episodes, as well as featuring the voices of other youth in British Columbia. My number one piece of advice, this is very general, is that you need to talk about this. I don't need to tell every administrator teacher out there that you have to like this issue or you have to want climate change to be true or you have to politically be somebody, you know, be in the part of the political spectrum that is most active on this. This is about responsibility to the future. Climate change is not about the environment. Climate change is about legacy. The choices we make over the next few decades are going to determine the climate of the planet not just for the next few decades, but for hundreds and hundreds of years to come, right? And the people, the generations that are gonna solve this are basically like my generation, my age, down towards the people that are in schools today. And it is our public responsibility in schools to talk about this with the students. And I think this is, this is whether you like it or not, is a civic duty that has to come with your job. I just think it's such an exciting and terrifying time that we're living in and I think that as teachers we can just by saying that also frame the importance of what we do and what we learn about and the choices we make you know the the future is plural and so we have in this moment all of these sort of strings that take us on these different trajectories and so the more that we can cultivate that agency of young people to recognize this moment and what it means for all those future plural futures that we have and to just bring it down to right now what can we do and to start there and it should be it it should also be fun and it should be exciting Okay, what's your main takeaway after listening to those people speak? Well, from all three interviews, it's very clear that we need better climate change education. Yeah, I totally agree. I think and hearing the students' voice is really impactful on that front as well. It's great that there's so much data as well. This isn't just people's general feeling that nothing is being done and it's not working, like all of Dr. Field's data really showed where the gaps were. And both Dr. Donner and Dr. Field, they kept coming back to the idea that it's our civic duty to teach this and how we're not just educators educating young people, but if you don't understand it, you don't understand policy that you might be voting on later, and you don't understand how you can make an impact in a de democratic society. 
And I think that some people might say, obviously, it's a civic duty and, and, be, and feel that that shows in education, but that's not the case at all. That was evident to me when Dr. Field showed that all of the climate change education curriculum appears in elective courses. Mm. And it's so rare that you find that in a compulsory course. It just gives the impression that this is optional learning, which it obviously isn't. I love that the youth that we interviewed are not waiting for adults. They're doing some very grown-up work with zero hesitation and so much passion. It's almost embarrassing as an adult yeah. to say, why didn't I do that? I knew this stuff too. Why haven't I taken the lead as much as they have? They're so inspiring. I think we have a lot to learn from them and I hope that uh, teachers across BC could bring in their stories and message into the classroom and other students can learn on how to move forward with the movement. Totally. And if we see what these youth are doing in spaces that aren't provided for them and with information that they are finding on, them, on their own, imagine if every teacher in the school took it upon themselves to tackle these systems and tackle these inequalities in a frame that was, you know, giving the students knowledge and empowering them in the classroom so that they didn't feel like they were wasting their times in the wall and then going out and, and using their own time afterward. Yeah, And in absolutely. all classrooms, not just our typical science classroom where we do see climate change, but let's bring it into the humanities, let's bring it into the arts, and so forth. And I think that's the main thing that I think we'll be talking about in the future is not just climate science, but how climate change is this massive systemic problem that every topic can address and every topic has power to address and, and students can see that and feel like they can make change on a systemic level, not just an individual level. I love that Dr. Field talked about this process being joyful and exciting. And when I think about the examples that we're gonna be diving into of people who are doing this work right now, I'm excited about how fun and joyful those examples are and I can't wait to share them. In our next episode, we'll talk about systems thinking and transdisciplinary learning and how they connect to climate change. This episode was recorded by Kate Jamea, Catherine Payne, Jasmine Hare, and Derek Van Dersen. Edited by Jasmine Hare. The music was written and recorded by Harley Small. And we'd like to thank City Studio Vancouver, Rob Van Weinsberg, University of British Columbia, and our Education for Sustainability cohort. We want this podcast to be a useful professional development tool for teachers and educators. So we're also building a website that will host resources and links to other organizations doing climate education work. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Sweet. That was good. That was good. <laughs> that was context. Put some context yeah. in there. Yeah. That's great. That was, a, that was great. Okay. Yeah. Oh, great.